0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times.
1: You're listening to In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Akhil Hamza.
2: And I'm Ang Ting. We are co-hosts for this episode where we will examine the hotly debated issue of transporting migrant workers on lorries and how young people in Singapore feel about it. In July, advocates renewed calls for the practice of ferrying workers on lorries to be banned in Singapore, after two accidents involving such vehicles where 37 people, including migrant workers, were injured. Days later, more than 20 business groups counted with a joint statement that said these regulatory changes will have real, practical and operational consequences. Among these challenges were increased traffic, commuter congestion and delays in completing projects as a result of banning lorries as a form of transport.
1: In the studio here with us is Surinder Kumar, an activist with worker rights group Workers Make Possible. The group was one of the 53 that called for a ban on the age-old practice. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me.
2: We initially had two associations agreeing to appear in this episode. They were part of the business groups who signed a statement cautioning about the potential ban. But eventually, they did not take up the offer. Instead, we have labour economist and associate professor Walter Thassera who heads the Master of Management in Urban Transportation program at the Singapore University of Social Sciences. Thanks for coming. Hi, good to
1: be here. Okay, so I'm going to just dive into the questions that we have right now. So the debate about banning the use of lorries to transport migrant workers has been going on for more than two decades. And yet the only compromise that's been reached is increased safety measures such as higher guard railings and making sure the front cabin is fully occupied. So what's so difficult for businesses to transport migrant workers safely in a manner that affords them dignity? So maybe, uh, Walter, you want to go first?
3: Sure. Well, so I think if you want to come down to what's really the core of the issue, I think it's a matter of cost, right? And I think the problem really is that uh, cost and safety, these things are actually traded off. And I know that sounds really horrible, but I want to take a step back and think about a very simple decision a lot of motorists make on a daily basis. And that decision is a lot of us who are drivers, we choose to drive a little faster, right? And that is a decision we make because we want to get somewhere faster, but it is one with a safety consequence. And that's why we obviously have a speed limit on the road. So when it comes to this decision being undertaken, right, by businesses, it's ultimately a trade-off between cost and safety they're making. The difference, however, is that unlike uh, the decision that I might make as a motorist, This is a decision being forced on migrant workers to some extent because they're not exactly in a position to choose how much cost of safety that they want to have in this whole enterprise. So I think that's really the contentious issue here. Besides the cost issue, I mean, I think the other things that need to be probably discussed a bit are why it's so difficult to transition migrant worker transport to a safer system, even if you set aside some of the cost issues at the moment. And I think the big issues are where workers live and where they work. There's a big separation of their dorms and their work sites. So there's a long distance that has to be traversed on a daily basis. There's also the lack of availability of uh, private transport options. That's another big problem. And there's also this excess problem, really, which is that uh, basically your work sites and your dorms tend to actually be very isolated from public transport, meaning that there's not much uh, options out there other than private transport for them. So these are the issues that need to be tackled. But we can talk a bit about them in
0: more detail later.
1: Kumar, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the matter then? Yeah,
0: I, I think at the heart of it also is that the government is actually, I think, knowingly going against the advice of experts on this issue. So I think in 9th May 2022, in Parliament, MP Lewis Ng did ask a question about what is the opinion of lorry suppliers, right? What is the opinion on transporting workers on the back of lorries? And the answer was that it is not safe right? It is not ideal for lorries to not carry any passengers in their rear decks. So I think that it's important to actually listen to the advice. And while, yes, it's good to hear what the public opinion on this issue is, I think some things are just a matter of science, right? And some things are just a matter of like, what is the objective truth on this? And I think objectively, and you're hearing it from lorry suppliers itself, it's just not safe. So in my opinion, I don't think that the safety of migrant workers should be up for public debate on that.
2: So who do you think should act in this case? And I mean, given that we've debated about this for so long.
0: Uh, yeah, so in our statement that we wrote, um, which so far no authorities have actually responded to that recommendation. And our recommendation was that Ministry of Transport provides subsidies to these companies, especially small medium enterprises, using the amount that's collected in the levies. So I think the business group statement assumes that the consumer has the better cost. right? But the question is actually, is that necessarily true, right? I think we have to look at the wider supply chain So one is the question of why can't the SMEs or, you know, even these bigger companies absorb this through getting lesser profits, right? That's one. But two, if, you know, for example, profitability is a really difficult thing to do in this environment and especially with, you know, cost pressures due to the rising prices and so on, then the question of redistributing the amount that's collected in the levies, right? So I think if I have the data here, in the construction sector, levies range from $300 to $950 per worker per month right? And in the marine sector, it ranges from $300 to $400 per worker per month. So if you look at 200,000 migrant workers in the dorms, you multiply it, you know, by 12 per worker, you would easily get, you know, a billion or close to a billion dollars, right? But of course, we don't have the exact figures on this. So it's very hard to say. And I think we also don't have any information and transparency as to what is actually being done with the money that's collected from the foreign worker levies. So I think it's fair even for SMEs to even ask, can't these be subsidized by the state? Right. And the other thing is whether or not it is actually more expensive to be transported by buses. If I remember correctly, in twenty twenty one, it was asked in Parliament. I think it was her Tingru who asked in Parliament and Amy Call gave a reply and she said that we actually have not had any studies shown as to how much it would cost. Right. So actually this idea that it would be more expensive, it's an assumption. So we did reach out to one employer that we know of uh, who is a small-medium enterprise in the construction sector, and he actually said that he would prefer to get buses. And the reason why is because if he has to transport them by lorries, he would have to pay for the worker, he would have to pay for the maintenance of the vehicle, so he doesn't have that economy of scale to actually manage this whole, in a sense, run a bit like a transport service, but it's better to actually outsource it, right? So the bigger issue here is actually do we have that many buses? And so on. And I think, like Walter, something you said in another podcast uh, really resonated with me also, is that not, we're not seeing necessarily that everybody overnight just goes to buses, right? We're, we're seeing actually it's, it's an ecosystem. And, you know, some can take public transport. If you shift the residences of where the migrant workers are, closer to the site. And now we have purpose-built dorms as well. So they have dormitories on the site. So that would be easier. That would solve the transportation issue, I think. And we're not saying that this is going to happen overnight, but it takes time. But we need to see actually great leaps in that direction. Yeah.
2: So you brought up several points. So the first being levies and the second being, is it really more expensive to use alternative modes of transport water? Do you have any thoughts about that?
3: Yeah, so I think first on the issue of the cost distribution, right? I think the difficulty we have right now is that it doesn't make a lot of sense for any one enterprise, any SME who, you know, hires migrant workers. It doesn't make sense for them to be the first one to move in order to change the way that they transport their workers. And the reason is very simple because... um, Most of them run their businesses in order to service various kinds of contracts they have with clients, right? It can be construction contract, service contract, whatever it is. And obviously, a lot of these contracts are basically won on the basis of being the lowest price and the best quality. And anytime they are thinking about doing something that is going to alter their business costs, they will face the prospect that either they make less profit or they don't win the contract. So given that you have all these businesses thinking about these decisions, right? you can see why none of them are going to be the ones to step forward, to be the first one to do this, even if some of them individually may feel that it's the right thing to do, whatever, but they have to run a business. And I think then it comes down to dollars and cents for them. So that's, I think, the challenge they face. Then if we agree, however, that some kind of change in the system would be desirable, then I think that's where this question of how do you distribute the cost actually comes up. And I can see several options for that, right? So one option would simply be that if you do have some kind of mandate towards this or some kind of regulatory change, then it becomes a situation where no choice businesses have to incorporate it in their cost structure because otherwise they won't be compliant with the law or regulation. Okay, and in that case, you would see all the contracts start to go up more, become more expensive over time as they incorporate these costs. Assuming it is more expensive, right? And that would basically be the way that the finance. It would be passed down then through the contract cost structure. Some of it would probably be borne by the SMEs hiring migrant workers. Some would be borne by their clients. And of course, as consumers, some of it might show up eventually in your consumer prices one way or another, right? So it would be distributed throughout society. The other mechanism that has been discussed is whether the government can come in, subsidize a bit, And I think that is also possible, right? I mean, that's a policy decision ultimately. I don't think it's something that needs to be tied to uh, migrant worker levies in particular. Rather, I just see it as uh, perhaps it is something that the government might consider as a transitional measure or something like that in order to at least get us a couple of steps down the road. But that's going to be a policy decision, right, as to how you want to structure it as to, for example, some thoughts about how you could get the whole ecosystem rolling might be to start with a requirement of this type for maybe government contracts and so on before you go on to the private sector as a whole to allow the industry to transition. But if you do that, then what you would be doing implicitly is subsidizing, right? Because you would be saying in a government or public sector contract, I want this requirement of a higher standard of safety for transport workers and I'm willing to accept that the contracts come in and may be priced a bit differently because of that. So that's an example of a subsidy that is not an explicit subsidy. It's just a subsidy in the sense that government might pay more Than they would otherwise uh, if they don't insist on this requirement. Then, you know, just briefly, I think on the cost structure and and how to deal with this. Again, this is not something that should be done overnight if the objective is to basically do a transition at the lowest possible cost. I think most likely a good transition would involve a couple of dimensions. It would involve relocating migrant workers where possible to places which are more accessible to public transport and to work sites. It would involve looking in some cases at whether public transport routes need to be realigned or need to have operating hours adjusted to accommodate more migrant workers. And of course, it would also involve looking at the private bus industry and other transport options to see whether that needs to be supported in some way. But it may not be cheap necessarily to make some of these changes. So to give a sense about what this would be, right? I mean, I haven't done a study about this. But if you look, for example, at school bus services, which many parents are familiar with, uh, I think many parents know that now the monthly cost, you know, for these school bus services will be easily in excess of $100 to $200 now. And that is for trips that I believe are quoted to be quite short. So if we're talking a much longer trip for migrant workers, then that would be possibly an additional cost on top of that. So I think these are some considerations that have to be thought about.
1: Okay, so I'd like to take a step back actually, you know, from the cost issue for a moment. How about from a sort of ideological perspective by transporting migrant workers and lorries actually, do you think it actually perpetuates this idea that migrant workers, they're viewed as second-class citizens basically, because you see them being shepherded around like livestock, you know, and lorries and all that? And do you think that with the continued proliferation of such a transport option, that just continues to feed into the idea that These people are here to serve us Singaporeans.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's correct. And I think it's unfortunate because I can flip the question the other way, right? So the question was, are Singaporeans willing to pay higher for their BTOs in order to ferry migrant workers in in buses? I could flip the question and ask, do you think migrant workers should subsidise our BTOs with their lives and limbs? right? And then I think the question, most people answering the question would probably actually say no, right? Because when you confront their morality, they would say no, especially when it's an ideological uh, kind of question. And so I think that it's just a fact that a lot of the economic miracle we have in Singapore, the high GDP growth rates and all that is really reliant on a large underclass of migrant workers, and we strip them of a lot of rights. And I think what's really Interesting to me, should be a point of reflection, I think, for all of us, is that despite these significant barriers to a lot of migrant workers from actually speaking up and saying anything about authentic about their working conditions, um, because you know they can be deported, right? And we have seen cases of migrant workers who are not able to come back after they've said something about their pay or they've said something about um, how they feel about living in Singapore and so on. So despite that, I think like migrant workers are especially vocal on this issue. There was this group called Migrant Workers Singapore. They organized a arts competition about what are workers' experiences about being transported in the lorry. And I think it was done in the projector. There were hundreds of people that attended. And I think it did help to shift conversation to get Singaporeans to really think about this more critically. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the issue here is
3: that Singaporeans by and large are quite comfortable with the status quo. For migrant workers to be in a different position with Singaporeans, I don't know whether you want to call it subservient or whatever it is, you know, but this is something that actually Singaporeans, I think, by and large, are comfortable with. And I would say also in this that, you know, one shouldn't single out Singaporeans in this discussion either. After all, when you look at the history of migrant workers in pretty much any advanced economy which relies heavily on them, the status quo in most places is that the local population generally vastly prefers migrants to stay out of sight and out of mind. And if they are seen, basically the local population tends to prefer that they are seen just attending to their work and certainly not in a social setting and definitely not demanding any sort of political or social rights and so on. This is pretty much, I would say, the status quo in any country with a high proportion of migrant workers. If you look, for example, at many of the European countries, they deal with not only just migration, in that case, it's, which is completely legal and in fact many of them are naturalized, migration from their former colonies, but the former migrants still occupy a second class position in society, and then they also have temporary migrants, which occupy an even more inferior position, as it were. So, Singapore is not unique in this. And I think this is actually part of the challenge, which is that some of the possible policy solutions to this issue of migrant worker transport are actually hard to move on because of, I think, uh, Singaporeans preferring the migrant workers out of their mind, right? For example, the policy solution of having them live closer to their work site, which includes For example, having them live much closer to HDB estates and so on, that's something Singaporeans more or less don't want. The policy option of having them occupy public transport in greater numbers, also something Singaporeans are not very keen on. And so I think without having a conversation about increasing uh, Singaporeans' willingness to accept migrant workers literally in their midst, uh, it may be hard to actually move much further on some of these policy
1: alternatives. I know it's a question for the planners, really, about whether we have the necessary resources and the foresight to be able to accommodate all this. Unfortunately, we can't ask the planners, so what, we did the next best thing, and we tried to find out from young people in Singapore about their thoughts on the matter. So what we did was we actually commissioned a survey of 1,000 residents here aged between 16 and 35. We wanted to find out people's stance on the issue, and we learned that more than half of the respondents, they're fine with the status quo.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, the problem with social change, right, is that everybody is uh, for these kinds of things in theory. But then when they come to confront uh, actual changes to their lifestyle or their cost structure, whatever that might be required, then they tend to get cold feet about it. And I think that's part of what is going on here. Okay, I, I think if you laid it out to people that you could achieve or you, it would be desirable to achieve certain changes to improve safety and so on in the migrant worker transport sector, I, I don't think many people would have a serious objection to that, right? I mean, what's wrong with improving safety? But when it comes to then dealing with basically the practicalities of improving safety, which in this case would involve some additional costs and some changes to our transport system and some potential uh, inconveniences for many Singaporeans, that's when people may start to get a couple of second thoughts and then they think, okay, well, get bearing all that in mind, maybe the current system is not so bad after all, right? Um, And I think that is part of what is going on here. But it seems to me pretty clear that people would like to solve this problem at no cost to themselves. And if they face more than minimal cost to themselves, they basically think twice or thrice about meaningful changes to the system. I think that's the issue here.
0: I think the question of who should bear the cost needs to uh, take into account the question of who benefits the most from the status quo. And I think we need to seriously look at profitability of the sector. Um, I know that there are companies who do transport them by bus. They do tend to be the bigger companies. And I suppose because for them, it is something that they can do and it's maybe part of perhaps right a supply chain kind of agreement and so on. But the SMEs will struggle. And I think that some of the SMEs might struggle because of how much they're already paying to actually hire migrant workers um, to do this very, very difficult work. And that goes to, I think, the foreign worker levy system. And there is a lot of argument about and a lot of debate, very constructive debate, I think, about the efficacy of the foreign worker levy. And the question also is, employers are paying this much money in terms of foreign worker levy. What What is it actually used for, right, to actually make this more sustainable ecosystem? So I think it's Perfectly understandable, actually, why Singaporeans would hesitate to pay a lot of money to subsidise migrant workers, fairer transport and all that, because I I don't think it's necessarily Singaporeans' responsibility per se. I don't think it's completely accurate to say that Singaporeans benefit the most out of this practice. I mean, Singaporeans have had a rough few years. I mean, housing prices are off the roof. Um, GSD has hiked, you know, 1% is going to hike again next year. Um, Water prices have hiked. Energy prices have hiked. Bus prices have hiked. So it's very understandable why a Singaporean would be very reluctant to be seen as the person who's responsible to subsidize this because I don't think it's necessarily the Singaporean that is the primary benefactor here.
3: I mean, I I agree. I agree with that. It's just that the point I want to make, however, is whether the Singaporean uh, wants to subsidize it or not, as in out of their own pocket, any changes to the current system will probably show up in cost structure somewhere. And when they show up in cost structure, then in a sense, everybody pays for it. I mean, I agree completely that businesses uh, have a role also to play. In you know basically taking the effort to upgrade the system and also you know obviously paying for this out of their pocket in terms of perhaps reduced profits, but I think it is inevitable that the cost will be distributed throughout all sectors of society, lah. And you know if you talk about the government paying for it, I mean I think then we we run into this curious issue of how for some reason Singaporeans don't believe that when the government pays for something, that does not mean that they are actually paying for it through taxpayer dollars, right? Or foreign worker levies or whatever it is, so. I think there's always an element of wishful thinking. I think whenever you want any sort of policy change, you always want somebody else to pay for it when in reality, uh, you would also have to be willing
0: to bear some of the cost as well. Yeah, I just want to add another point, which is I think something that you mentioned earlier as well, that the public sector can, can sort of make the, the first move in a way, right? And I think there is data to show that the largest demand in construction sector actually comes from the public sector. I think 60% of the demand so, you know, making sure that this fair transport is part of the minimum standard of, of how you transport your workers is actually a very viable way to actually move the needle. And it's something that the government has power to move as well. And I think that how this cost is distributed, I, I do agree that, of course, there will be, um, that, you know, costs will get distributed and, you know, sometimes people will have to pay more and so on. But I think it's very hard to expect, I think, a Singaporean to, to say that, yeah, I'm willing to pay more in a survey like that, right? If it's inevitable... Right, I think people would just accept it. Like, okay, yes, we we do have to, to pay, you know, a bit more just to ensure that workers can be transported fairly.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, I, I tend to agree with that because now I think about it, if the question were reversed, right? Suppose that we are currently suffering through high inflation, as of course we are. And all of a sudden, the government or somebody said, you know, I've got a great idea of how I'm going to hold down inflation slightly. I'm going to basically force all the migrant workers off their private buses and so on and throw them to the back of lorries just so that I can try to bring down inflation by a tiny amount. I think if we put that question to the public, I hope and I trust that Singaporeans will say, you know, that's a terrible idea. How can we do that just for the hope of slightly reducing inflation? But the point is, the status quo is what it is. And we are used to it, and so we don't want to change it. But I think if the reverse of the status quo, I hope, you know, I trust we wouldn't throw migrant workers into the back of the just to try to hold on inflation by a tiny amount. I don't think that would make
0: sense. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app.
1: Back to our conversation with labour economist and associate professor Walter Thesera, and Surinder Kumar, an activist with worker rights group Workers Make Possible.
2: So why was the letter written in first place, like, this year? I mean, it's been discussed in 2021 as well.
1: Yeah,
0: so there was an accident that happened, I think, very close to when we released that statement. I think it was 18th of July, early morning, three lorries piled up in an accident on Kranjie Expressway. 26 migrant workers who had been riding in them were taken to three different hospitals after sustaining injuries. And the very next day, there was another accident. A car collided with a lorry on the KPE. 11 people were taken to the hospital, including 10 migrant workers from the lorries and, and there was a lot of groundswell Among the NGOs And we were even hearing People who were really Upset about it And, and they were even From the so-called You know More government-aligned Sort of uh, organisations Like Migrant Workers Centre And all that And so we felt like It was maybe a, a good time To write something To try to galvanise Some consensus on it So we were quite surprised That so many NGOs and and even just worker groups, right? So, like, some of them were like migrant dance groups, right? Some of them were just community groups. Some of them had nothing to do with migrant rights at all, right? We had food livery riders, we had um, rental flat residents, we had so many different types of groups signing the statement. And I think just everybody just could see that this is not okay. And yeah, and I think it did shift the needle a little bit because I think it triggered a response from the business groups. And I think the business groups actually, uh, their statement, I think, attracted a lot of public sentiment more so than our statements, I think. Um, And I think because people were not really happy with that statement, right? And there was even one person who was in the FinTech Association and she resigned in protest, right? So so these sort of actions, I had never seen such sentiments for migrant workers' issues in, you know, the last few years. And especially when, when I look back at the issue in 2009 when, you know, um, people in home, TWC2 were bringing up this Humans Not Cargo campaign, it had not reached that level of mass sort of concern, right? So even now, you know, when you look at your survey and, and maybe if you look at it, A, historically, it might look a little bit demoralising and all that. I think there might have been a shift in sentiments, actually.
2: So our survey found that most young people believe that employers should bear the cost of transporting migrant workers safely. So of those willing to pay more, I mean, you gave a little preview of that. But the majority say that they are fine if the amount is between $1 to $99 a year, which is also the lowest category we provided. So how realistic is this? Maybe, so you want to address that?
3: Sure. So I think first, any time any kind of changes proposed or thought about for, you might say, uh, workers' rights or safety or anything like that, I think there's always a tendency all of us naturally have that somebody else should pay for it, right? But at the same time, even if it's a good thing to have, it is somebody else's problem in terms of how to administer it, how to fund it, how to pay for it. So I would read the results in that light as basically supporting this very natural feeling all of us have that somebody else ought to be responsible. And as for the range that we're willing to pay for it, assuming that we had to pay for it, again, I understand why people choose $1 to $99 because I think first, most people don't have much idea of how much it would actually cost to transport workers on private transport. So uh, for example, those who maybe engage private bus services, school bus services for their children, they will know that nowadays the costs actually exceed $1 to $200 a month quite often. So there's no sense in which it would be super cheap, right? And I think the second thing is most people, of course, don't really have a good sense of how does the cost of transporting workers even factor into the entire cost structure of an industry enterprise. But, you know, all that being said, from the economic viewpoint, any change to an economic system ultimately involves some costs. Those costs are going to be distributed throughout the entire supply chain and throughout the entire economy. So yes, I agree that businesses would have to play a very important role in paying for this and restructuring it, but that would also come with their cost structure changing. Uh, the contracts that they're bidding on, the prices they charge their clients, if they own, all have to go up a little bit. And eventually, that would mean that uh, basically the public sector would pay a bit more for, for example, your BTO contract. Your HDB residents would pay slightly more, perhaps, for the BTO prices or even the prices of anything else that were connected to migrant workers in some way. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, right? But I think What is important is that people have to understand that if this is an important thing to do and they believe in it and they think that this is the right thing to do, then part of that responsibility for pushing for the change means being willing to accept, you know, the final result in the system, right? Whether that is an increased cost or whatever else it might be.
2: So Kuma, as a young person yourself, I mean, you fall within our service category. So how much are you willing to pay a year to ensure that migrant workers are going to work safely?
0: Yeah, I think, again, it goes back to what I said earlier, which is that the issue of who should pay goes back to, I think, who benefits the most. And so, again, I think it's a lot of these questions, I think, are also loaded with a couple of assumptions, like, for example, that it would result in higher BTO prices and all that. I think the cost structure is not so straightforward. I don't think that it's a clear-cut picture as well. And I think that question about how much am I willing to pay, it depends on what is required, right? Right. I mean, personally, right, I don't have an issue with this. I don't think that migrant workers' safety should be, um, we should look at it in terms of economic digits, right? Let's say none of our cars had seatbelts, right? And then we say, okay, how much would it cost to have seatbelts in all the taxis, for example, right? We wouldn't be asking that debate. It would just be common sense. But like, of course we need to have cars with seatbelts. So the same thing, I think we have to really applaud the business groups for really shifting the debate so successfully as to like, even in this debate, we are accepting that framing. That, yeah, for migrant workers' safety, let's let's talk about dollars and cents, right? When I don't think that needed to be the case. I think the business groups and, and actually the government, we haven't talked about the government statement that came after the business group statement, which largely replicated the business group statement, which I thought was a lot more disappointing. The business groups are, of course, going to see it. And I think that's something that Tommy Tomiko did say as well, right? That of course, they're going to see it as they are, you know, a business. They are going to talk about profits. They would want to preserve their profit margins. But I was disappointed to see that a government was actually parroting the same points, Right and and I think that that was that was disappointing yeah
3: I think at least where government is concerned, it would have been good to for government I think to have a better sense of what is the actual cost structure implications of actually changing the policy on this because I don't think this is something that today we have a very good sense of uh, anywhere in Singapore and I don't think government has necessarily done the work to figure this out either at the end of the day, if the judgment right if the judgment is changing, the system of transporting migrant workers would in fact actually substantially increase business costs and that would, for example, have a certain effect on the economy, on inflation and so on, that the government does not think is in the best interests of Singaporeans, then that is a decision that the government can make, has to sell to the public and has to live with. But I am not so sure that all of the evidence for this has actually been established to any great detail it may very well be that after a transition period, some of these changes could be made effectively to increase micro safety without having, you might say, a catastrophic effect on the economy or inflation or any of the other things that Singaporeans care about. I mean, I don't know which is the truth here, you see. But I do think that if government looks at this issue, my view is they should do so based on a proper study of what would be the transition cost of changing the system. Uh, because I think, you know, right now, I'm not saying that government is wrong in saying what they did. They could well be right, but I'm just not aware, you see, of what the evidence is behind the assertion they're making here, uh, supporting the business groups. So I think this is something that is worth looking at, at least quite seriously.
0: Yeah, and just to build on that point, I I think it's just to stress something that Walter said, and I, I also completely agree, is that we're looking at an ecosystem of solutions, right? We're not saying that all migrant workers should be transported in buses tomorrow, right? But what we're saying is that Migrant workers should have the right to safe transportation. And that safe transportation looks like taking public transport. It looks like taking buses. It can look like in any other way, right? That's, but lorries is just objectively not safe. Like it's said in parliament already, right? It's something that I think MP Lewis Ng has also been bringing up repeatedly. Uh, yet we are going against that advice. So I, I think measures to make the lorries safer are always going to be limited. It's stop gets at best. But I think, you know, moving the residences of migrant workers closer to their work sites is, you know, a great idea. I think it's part of the transition that we're talking about. And and again, like even if you look at public opinion survey, I don't think many Singaporeans have a problem with migrant workers stay, taking public transport. It has been echoed by certain voices that, yeah, they might have this issue, but they're all assumptions.
2: So actually time and time again, committees have been convened to look at this issue and they've come up with just like incremental better measures Do you think that they should continue trying as far as it seems that people seem to be okay with the safety as it is now?
0: I mean, my opinion on these committees, I get very sceptical when I see another task force convene because it's always like, okay, task force. I think the the task force that I've seen, I mean, as a citizen, right, that that I've seen a lot of impact was the COVID task force, right? But, you you know, you you see them really like addressing people every time and, and giving updates about what's happening and all that. That's a very live issue. But I'm not so concerned about how the policymakers and all that go about finding a, a solution to this. If a task force helps, go ahead. But I'm just skeptical of, okay, task force and then job is done, right? I think we just need to see some real movement in that direction that there is going to be change. And there's consultation with the NGOs who've been working on these issues for decades. Yeah, And, and actually, the migrant workers themselves, right? They are the ones that have a stake in this. They, they are, there are so many of them who have so many ideas. Um, they have signed this statement as well. So what is their opinion on the matter and and what, what are their ideas, right? I'm pretty sure they have some ideas as well.
3: You know, I think it's going to come down to what are the terms of reference for such a committee, task force, or whatever it might be. If your terms of reference are that you want to work very strictly within the existing framework, right? In other words, you don't want to contemplate any broader policy or economic changes such as, you know, moving the workers closer to work sites, looking at using public transport where feasible, Uh, looking at expanding the private bus industry, if none of these things in your TOR, then it is, to me, fairly obvious what the task force would do. The task force would simply look for ways to make the existing system of lorry transport a little bit safer, right, on the margins. Uh, And of course, we've, you know, heard of many potential ways to do that, as well as ways which have already been implemented, such as, you know, ensuring that people have some kind of seat on the back of the lorry, such as it is. I mean, I think people would not say that the seats that are provided are, from an engineering standpoint, safe, but it is what it is, right? So the point is, a task force can only be as good as the terms of reference are. And if the terms of reference do not allow for the possibility of exploring, I would say, a complete reshaping of the system, then I think it is predictable what the task force would produce because that is, after all, what they're commissioned to do. So, uh, you know, if, if one does have a task force on this, I think one ought to be bold enough to at least have the task force consider more serious or maybe more radical measures to improve migrant worker safety, at least to see what's the feasibility cost and so on. If at the end of the day, you know the task force reports back and says we considered all these things and we have all these reasons why we think these options are not going to work in the next couple of years or whatever, from my point of view that's okay, we can then look at the reasons and debate that. but I think if we don't even consider these options seriously then, we don't really have any progress, right? Because then it's basically a bunch of advocates saying, no, you can do all these changes and it won't be that expensive. And you have a bunch of people on the other side saying, no, 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 all these changes will never work and they're very expensive. And we we don't really know what is the truth actually between these two things. That's the problem we have right now. Yeah, so when it comes to how we treat workers, especially those who are disadvantaged in society, right? They can be migrant workers, they can be our low-wage workers, for example. Um... I think it is actually a bit much to expect that businesses will naturally try to upgrade their treatment and consideration of these workers all by themselves. Now, I'm not saying that all businesses are bad. I mean, we have, you know, quite a lot of businesses which I think try to do the best they can by their workers, as well as, of course, some bad eggs here and there. But ultimately. If we want to ensure that there is a minimum level of, for example, wages or quality or safety, whatever it is that we want for workers, I think we have to come in regulation and legislation there because that will ensure that fair treatment or proper treatment is not up to the whims of the employer, right? I don't think we want that situation for anybody, including ourselves. But then if it comes to regulation and legislation, that means that as a society, we need to be willing to hear the arguments for such regulations. And, you know, we need to be willing to tell politicians that this is something that we care about. And in fact, we are going to, for example, vote based on it, you know. So that's, I think, the communication needs to happen. So personally, I'm not very much in favor of uh, individual action, except in terms of how it is directed towards, for example, getting some kind of consensus for changes to regulation and legislation, because individual actions to engage with migrant workers on a one-to-one basis, I mean, that's a nice thing to do, I think. But if it doesn't build towards getting more popular social support for the change, I'm not sure how that is going to, in the end, actually upgrade the conditions for migrant workers. But it's a good intermediate step in the sense that it gets more Singaporeans aware of the issue. So that's a good thing. But I think a lot more would have to be done to actually engage regular Singaporeans because I think a lot of Singaporeans are still unaware of what's going on in the issue or they only have a half picture of what's going on. So at least educating them and then after that, having them think about it and then they can decide, you know, what do they really want? It may well, by the way, be that in the end, people who have thought about the issue quite long and hard can come to the conclusion, you know what? I don't want to support the change in the system, okay? I mean, if that is the case, then so be it. But I think a lot of people simply haven't yet actually thought about the issue, and I think there's some
0: room to move there, basically. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with what Walter says about this. I don't think that this is something that individuals have a lot of power in, in, in changing in itself. Right, but I do think that individuals can play a part in shaping the shift towards more progressive legislation and more progressive regulation here. For example, like you know those groups coming together to sign a statement um, is an example of, of trying to raise awareness and trying to raise understanding about the issue and inviting other groups to actually bring this up and spread it out. And I mean, we have like, you know, 53 groups that signed like our statement specifically, but we had a lot more groups that came after we, we signed it and they say they wanted to sign it as well. So it could have easily gone to 60, 70 groups as well. Also, I'm not sure whether you're aware, like some food delivery riders are also trying to raise awareness on the issue because they link the issue to road safety. And 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 food riders have, have a different issue with the roads, right? Which is that since twenty nineteen they, they banned the PMDs and and, and e bikes were sort of relegated to the roads. And there has been, I think, a rise in accidents that happened there. And so they identified with what was going on with the migrant workers there. And so in solidarity, they started putting stickers on their food delivery bags, right? And they started distributing it to other riders. So like this group called SG Riders, they're trying to raise awareness. there to food delivery riders themselves. Like even the presidential candidates, right? They they all voiced their, most of them, right? Voiced their opposition to the practice. And I think that has also resulted in a lot of uh, awareness and a lot of people talking about it. So I, I think like many people, are, and, and especially workers in different sectors, are actually connected to this issue in various ways. I can think of one example at least, other than the food riders, healthcare workers, right? So healthcare workers see these workers who get into accidents at their A&E right and a lot of them I, i'm sure are very aware of like what the health risks are you know and and the dangers that migrant workers uh, go through especially your healthcare workers in the orthopedics department and all that they would know like what is the impact of this and so these are invitations as well for different workers in different sectors to express solidarity and through expressing that solidarity i think you're raising awareness i think you're also trying to move our government to really bring Um, more progressive legislation and more progressive regulation. So I think that's what individuals can do, whether you're a student, whether you're even a journalist or whether like find some sort of connection right to the issue and why do you not agree with this? And, you know, try to find a way to organize your fellow co-workers and write something that collectively represents what you all feel about the issue. I think those things really help keep the agenda
1: alive. Thank you, Kumar, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Walter, as well for sharing your thoughts. Thank you.
2: Well, that's a wrap for In Your Opinion. I'm Ang Ting.
1: And I'm Akhil Hamza. If you resonate with the points raised, do share this podcast episode with your friends and family. Or you can write in to us with your thoughts on the issue.
2: If you'd like to read Akhil's or my articles and ST's opinion columns, there are links in our podcast show notes. Thanks for listening.
0: Send your feedback to podcast at Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or within our Straits Times app. Thanks for listening.